0: Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you, Lord, I'm remembering what Paul wrote to the book to the Romans when he said, for whatever things were written, were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. These things were written not so that we would be hopeless, but that we would be hopeful Not so that we would be ignorant, but that we would be instructed. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. So that we would learn. And that we would be instructed. That we would grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth. That, Lord, we would be men and women who love you and serve you, but also who are useful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel, chapter 10. I'm going to read part of the chapter and we're going to go over that part of the chapter and then we're going to pick up where we left off. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. Not in that way. It was in a real in a different way and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there. And come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man and let it be. When these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Now, as we begin this 10th chapter, remember, Israel wants a king. And the reason why they want a king is because they've rejected the true king. And remember what we prayed earlier. These things were written for our learning that we, through the patience and the And comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. These things were written not so that you would be confused and hopeless, but that you would be instructed and hopeful. That we could learn the lessons that are herein contained. Now, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demanded a king. The reason Samuel was getting old, his sons were getting wicked. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. And then in chapter 9, Saul is chosen by Samuel at God's command. Saul seeks Samuel's advice concerning some lost animals. Long ago, there was a man named F. Scott Fitzgerald, very famous author and short story writer. He wrote a story about a man who was born in his 80s, and then he proceeds through life in reverse. And the short story was adapted into a movie, but the original short story bears little resemblance to Hollywood's adaptation. The name of the story some of you might be familiar with, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Now, early on, you know that the character is going through a reverse aging process. A baby is born, like I said, in his 80s. He's going to proceed through life in reverse. And you can imagine, once you know that, you can imagine the disadvantages and the trials and the traumas that you're going to experience. And Saul's story is very much like that. It's a curious case. It's the story of a man who starts off with great spiritual promise and true spiritual advantage. And then he rapidly descends into a spiritual disaster. Like the curious case of Benjamin Button. Saul's growth begins with maturity and goes to infancy, if you will. Now, again, for the person who's familiar with the Old Testament... You read the story of Saul and there's this certain knowledge in the back of your brain that things aren't going to go well for Saul. And remember the reason why, in part, Saul is a type and a picture of the carnal man or woman. The person who has a heart not after God, but after the flesh. And David is going to become the type and the picture of the spiritual person. As a matter of fact, For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you understand the steps of Saul's fall. He's going to intrude into the office of the priesthood in 1 Samuel chapter 13. He is going to order the death of his own son in 1 Samuel chapter 14. He's going to spare Amalek, God's enemy, in chapter 15. He's going to be possessed by an evil spirit in chapter 16. He's going to attempt to kill David in chapter 18. He curses and then attempts to kill his own son again in chapter 20. He slaughters 85 priests of God in chapter 22. He goes to the witch of Endor in chapter 28. This is pretty bad. And so it should cause you right from the start to ask and answer the question, how can things start so well and end so bad? And that's part of what we're going to do. As we study the book, look again in verse one, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Now, remember, this is a very private moment. He sent Saul's servant away in chapter nine. The only people who know about this are Saul and Samuel, and he literally pours oil over the top of his head. Now we use that term anointing rarely in the physical sense in the Old Testament times when a person would become a priest, a cruise or a pitcher of oil would be poured over their head and it would gum down their hair and down their face and their beard and all over their body. They would be drenched in oil and the oil becomes a type and a picture in the Bible of a special anointing, if you will, of a service or a position or an office. The Bible in the New Testament speaks of us as Christians that we are called by God and we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. That means we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we come into a right relationship with God through Christ. And so just like this literal anointing begins to, to happen over the top of Saul's head, it becomes a type and a picture of Of the in the indwelling or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit for a specific task and a specific purpose to fulfill the office that God has called him to. And so. When Samuel kisses him, it's not just a greeting. It's a sign of support. Now remember, this young man has went out looking for donkeys. He's left without food and provision. He's come upon the prophet. He finds out that he's going to be the king of Israel. This is all pretty heady stuff. And at this point, only Samuel and Saul know about the anointing. And so you can imagine how can Saul be sure of this calling? And Samuel will proceed to give him three signs, special encounters that Saul will experience as the young man makes his way home. And the signs are given in a specific sequence and include the areas in which they will take place. And you can imagine that when something happens to you, when you discover that God has a special plan for you, Each and every one of you who have ever come into a right relationship with God in Christ, you remember the moment that you actually believed the gospel, that you experienced the forgiveness of sin, redemption by grace through faith, and you began to realize that God had a plan for you. And it was a plan of forgiveness and hope. And for those of you who became mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and teachers and pastors and whatever gift and calling that God has placed on your life, there was this heady realization that you were being called and focused and sent in a very specific direction. I remember when I got saved as a young 16 year old kid. There was this overwhelming sense Of grace and mercy that flooded my heart as I realized that God had not only saved me, but in the next hours and days and weeks, it just began to unfold to me that God had a special plan for me. I couldn't believe it. But I knew that that's what I wanted. I wanted to devote my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Samuel's kiss, like I said, is more than just a greeting. It's a sign of support because you, you can imagine going through young Saul's heart is this is all it's too weird. It's all too surreal. How do I know that this is really going to happen? And so, like I said, he's going to give him a series of signs and Saul anoints him to be commander. Look what he says. Over his inheritance. It's a special plan and it's a special calling. But right from the start, Samuel imparts to Saul the reality that he's not a king, but he's a king over a peculiar people, God's people. And so in verse two, it says, when you've departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? The first time you're going to leave, you're going to go kind of a bizarre route. You're going to come across people. You're going to apparently be familiar with these people and they're going to be familiar with you. And they're going to communicate with you, your father's. Business And here's the idea. Their testimony and confirmation will confirm Samuel's words. But it's more than just a confirmation of Samuel's words. It's a tool to strengthen their confidence in the Lord. And when you became a Christian, I'm sure someone must have told you, read your Bible, pray. And by the way, you have an enemy, the devil. He hates you big time. He's going to try and rob from you and steal from you. He's going to try and take God's gift away from you, but he can't do it because it's God's gift. He's going to try to ridicule you and humiliate you and confuse you and disturb you. Why does Samuel give this, I think, is the first sign? In part, and this becomes the important part of the sign. It isn't just simply a sign to Samuel And and to Saul, it becomes a sign. Listen carefully, because this is important. The Lord God has the ability to solve life's most difficult problems. Remember, his father had sent him on an errand to go find the donkeys. Now, think about it. If your donkeys are lost, that becomes the most pressing problem in your life. And remember what else I told you? Remember, it's sort of like the car dealership in the ancient world. And the whole lot has disappeared. This is your source of income. This is your livelihood. And so it's very, very important that you understand that sometimes when God has a gift and a calling upon your life, there are going to be pressures that are placed on you. And people will say to you, don't you realize you have real problems that you have? What are you doing going to church? Don't you realize that your husband or your wife is getting ready to leave, that your children are creating a crisis in your life, that the economy is collapsing, that the leadership of this country is caving is, is in on itself and things look, what are you doing going to church? Don't you realize that there are real problems out there? What are you doing talking to that person about Jesus? Why are you always opening up the Bible? Well, guess what? The Lord God has the ability to solve life's most difficult problems, including your problems. And so guess what? Even as he is experiencing this anointing, even as he's receiving encouragement from the prophet, it's to point in that direction. And then here's the second sign. In verse three, it says, then you shall go on forward from there and come to the Terebinth tree of Tabor. There will be three guys going up to God at Bethel because this is the place where they worship and they will meet you. One will be carrying three goats. Another will be carrying three loaves of bread and another will be carrying a skin of wine. Now, think about God's sovereignty as Samuel is revealing the very steps of his life that is going to take place at that very day as he makes his way to Bethel. He's going to come to the terebin tree. There he's going to meet three people who are going to worship God. They have three young goats because they're going to sacrifice the goats. They're carrying the three loaves of bread because they're going to use it To sustain themselves and they're carrying a skin of wine. And look what it says in verse four. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. So here's the second sign. Not only does God know every specific detail of what's going to happen in your life, but look what is actually happening when the sign is given. The Lord God has the ability to supply all your needs. How are we going to make it home with no food? How are we going to make it through life? Has anyone ever said to you, Oh, how's that Bible going to feed you? You know, when I was in college, I so did not want to be a preacher or a pastor. I thought, this, this is stupid. When I went to college, one of the very first colleges that I attended was a, a college called Azusa Pacific. And they required that you take Bible. There were certain Bible elements that you had to have in order to graduate. And every molecule in my body said, You're a Bible teacher. You're a Bible teacher. You're a Bible teacher. And I thought, what what if I graduate? And what if I have to get a real job? I mean, I can just see myself applying for a job. Well, what's your degree in? Bible study? Oh, Sorry, we need doctors, lawyers, social workers, nurses. We need people with real skills. We don't need Bible teachers. And I'll be honest with you, I panicked. I thought, wow, if I go to a college and, and get a Bible degree, what will I do with the rest of my life? And I panicked quit. And I wound up at the University of San Francisco taking law in the hopes of becoming an attorney. So I could get a real job. And all along, God had a real job in mind for me. And God had a real job in mind for Saul. The Lord God was going to meet his needs. The Lord God was going to supply all of his needs. Now, Think about that for just a moment. If the first sign means the Lord has the ability to solve your problems, and the second sign includes the Lord has the ability to meet all of your needs, look what the third sign is. In First Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, it says, And after that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you're going to meet a group of prophets coming down from a high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp them and they're going to be prophesying. In other words, you're going to come down this hill and you're going to break into a prayer meeting and a praise meeting. And all of these religious fanatics are going to be doing religious fanatic kinds of things. By the way, the hill of God is called Gibeat Elohim. This hill is the seat of the Philistine governor. We're going to learn that For those of you who have read ahead in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, this is the place where the Philistines have a stronghold. And remember, the Philistines were the ones who oppressed, persecuted, intimidated the children of God. Saul is going to join the young men in giving thanks and praise to the Lord. Now you've got to understand how ridiculous this is. Saul is a farmer. His dad is a warrior. He had remember he had no idea who Samuel is. Is he a religious guy? No. This would be like if Bill Marr went to a revival meeting. And all of a sudden, he went into the church and he started singing and praising God. This would be like if Christopher Hitchens, who is also a self avowed atheist, all of a sudden he goes into a church and he starts proclaiming the Lord and his goodness and giving thanks and praise to the Lord. Okay, okay, let me put it to you this way think about the most irreligious person that you know. The thought of this person actually going to a church. and singing songs and praising God just makes you laugh. And it can't be yourself, okay? That's what he's talking about. And in verse 6 it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon, will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and turn into another man. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon Saul, and he'll become a changed man. And it's okay for you to ask this question. In what way will he become a changed man? Does changed man mean will he go from unsaved to saved? The more likely explanation is he's not going from darkness to light, death to life. The more likely explanation is that Saul is going from farmer To a military leader and to a religious leader being open to the things of God. Now, here is the idea. Is God calling Saul to be the king? What is the right answer? Yes, he's just been anointed king. Because he's been anointed king... The Lord God has the ability to give him the power that he will need in order to perform the service. Doesn't that make sense? If God has called you to be a pastor... Then doesn't it make sense to you that God will empower you with the gifts and callings that you need to be a pastor? If God has called you to be a mother, if God has called you to be a father, if God has called you to be a husband, a wife, if God has called you to be a teacher, if God has called you to be a person who encourages people, if God has called you to pray for people, to lay hands on them and and that the sick will recover, if God has called you to have a ministry of faith where you believe God for outrageously amazing things... If God has given you a gift of giving, if God has given you a gift of government, if God has given you whatever gift that God has given you, doesn't it make sense to you that He will give you the power necessary to accomplish exactly what it is that God has called you to do? So let's make this very simple. Has God called you to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him? And to walk with Him? What do you think the right answer is? For all, the Bible says, who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You're going to face all kinds of difficulty and pain and problems. But guess what? The Bible says be of good cheer because He's overcome the world. The Lord has given you everything that you need. All of the power that you need for service. Now think about this. The signs... Don't simply speak to the sovereignty of God. It speaks to that and more. It doesn't just simply speak to the unchanging nature of God. It speaks to that and of, of more. It doesn't just simply speak to God's ability to solve life's most difficult problems. It's more. It doesn't just simply speak to the fact that God will give you all of your needs in Christ Jesus. It doesn't just simply talk about the ability to, to give you the power that you'll need for service. It's a willingness to give you the power that you need for service. You don't have to beg God for the Holy Spirit in your life. For the power to love Him and serve Him. Now think. In verse 7 it says, And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands. And look what it says. For God is with you. Samuel has anointed Him. To an office that he never in a million years would have thought that he was qualified for. He kissed him as a sign of support. And then he gives him a series of signs so that he will know that this isn't something that he's just made up. Just like you. God opens up the door of your heart. God says, test me. And trust me. If you'll open up your heart to me, I'll love you, I'll forgive you, I'll make you a new creation in Christ, I'll equip you and supply you to do exactly what I've called you to do. And look what it says in verse 8: You shall go down before me to Gilgal. And surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. You know, verse eight is a very interesting verse for a number of different reasons. It's a difficult verse. The reason why it's a difficult verse is because we don't know if he's talking about something in the immediate present Or in the immediate future. As a matter of fact, Warren Wiersbe suggests that verse 8 should be translated this way. When you go before me to Gilgal. The idea being that at some future date, when King Saul will have an army arrayed for battle. That this is the time that you must wait for Samuel. And by the way, this event is going to take some years later. It's, It's going to take place in chapter 13. Now, part of what I need to do is to sort of orient you to the chronology of what's taking place in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, Saul is a very young man. In the next few years, his kingdom and his support is going to grow. And by the time we get to chapter 13, Saul is going to be in a position of power. I think that the verse is a reminder that even though he's anointed king, he must be careful. And let me tell you what I mean by this. He mustn't intrude on the office of the priest. God has anointed him to be the king, but not the priest. Remember, there is a kind of a separation of powers. And the kind of separation of powers is the prophet and the priest and the king are all in submission to God. The king leads. The priest prays and offers sacrifices. So here's the idea. Both Saul and Samuel are subject to the Lord God. Samuel's priestly functions don't extend to Saul. Saul is receiving a gift from God, but also he has an obligation towards God. And this becomes an important principle for each and every one of us. When you are a Christian, you are given gifts by God. But with those gifts come responsibilities. You have a responsibility not to abuse the gift, not to pervert and twist and distort the gift. We have an obligation. The gift from God is an inward transformation The gift for God is our ministry of service to him, our obligation to him, our obligation to obey him. By the way, Samuel is going to fail miserably in that category. And in verse nine, it says, so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that is Saul that God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day. Do you understand what's happening? The anointing of the oil, the prediction or the prophecy of the signs, the encouragement began to cause Saul to think maybe this is true. Maybe this could really happen. And again, the sovereign God is working according to his sovereign will. The Bible says that Saul became a new man. And that he was given another heart. What are we to make of those statements? How should we interpret them? And then how should we apply them? Does this mean that Saul was born again? Does this mean that he was regenerated in the New Testament sense of the word? Or... I'm going to suggest some are going to say, well, yeah, if he's given, if he's a new man and he's given a new heart, then in some way he has changed. But but does that mean that he's truly changed from the inside out? Is he changed in his heart? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to have an external religious experience, but your internal heart remains the same? Is it possible to go to a church? Is it possible to pray a prayer? Is it possible to have a religious experience and then for some fundamental reason, the heart isn't changed? I'm going to suggest that whatever it means to to, to be another man and to have another heart, that it doesn't mean born again, at least in this particular instance. Clearly in the Old Testament, was it possible for the Holy Spirit to come upon people for a specific act or a specific ministry and a specific service? I think that the answer is yes. You'll remember later when Batsh- when David has his fiasco with Bathsheba, he prays a prayer and he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't take away your Your Holy Spirit from me. Clearly, Saul is going to compromise. His compromise is going to lead to disobedience. His disobedience is going to lead to full on rebellion. He will lose the Spirit's power. He will lose the kingdom. He will lose the legacy. He will lose his life. I'm going to suggest to you that this new heart And this new man is a new outlook. It's a new attitude. It's a new outlook and a new attitude that's going to change him from farmer to king. From servant to leader. But there's going to be something fundamentally unchanged in his heart. He seems to do well when he's with Samuel. He seems to do well when he's with David, but once he is detached from Samuel and once he's detached from David, it's sort of there's no prohibitions. There's no there's nothing to keep him from doing exactly what he wants. And clearly, if you have a new outlook and a new attitude and you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to check it out. Hey, I'm going to read my Bible. Hey, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Hey, I'm going to go to a women's study or a men's study or or a student group. But there's not a fundamental change that takes place in your heart because you've never repented of your sin and you've never experienced the powerful presence of the indwelling spirit. There's going to be some real frustrations ahead for you. I'll tell you what is the most difficult thing in the world. The most difficult thing in the world is to live the Christian life and you're not really a Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? The most difficult thing you could possibly ever hope to do is to have a different heart and a different love and a different commitment and a different willingness to obey unless there has been a fundamental change inside of you. And for whatever reason, Saul is going to latch on to the externals. But there's something internally wrong. In verse 10, look what it says. When they, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. Do you know what that means? There was a powerful movement. A God-ordained outpouring of the real Holy Spirit. This anointing that was physical now becomes real and practical. And as he goes to meet the group of prophets, and remember, these prophets aren't just people who predict the future. It's not like Hosea and Habakkuk. It's not like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. Here... A prophet is a person who tells the truth, who speaks the truth concerning God and God's word and God's character and God's plan and God's purpose. They come down the hill, they meet him, the spirit of God comes upon him. And you might be thinking, is it possible for the spirit of God to come upon a person and that person remain unchanged? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament about Balaam? Remember, Balaam was a prophet about the time that Moses was coming through. And every now and then God would speak to him and tell him what to say and do. He had a reputation in all those parts of being on the line of power. And when Moab's king heard Israel was coming, he called him in in the needy hour. That's how I remember all of that. Now, Balaam had a power, a supernatural power to hear from God. And the Moabite king hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. He tries to curse the Israelites and he's unable to do it. He says, look, I can't do it because God's blessed them. You're asking me to do something that's impossible. When God has blessed someone, it's not possible for me to curse them. Now, he will finally be manipulated and he will finally compromise And in his manipulation and compromise, he is going to deceive and undermine the plan of God for the children of Israel. Does he have a real power? Yes. Does he have a real gift from God? Yes. Is he saved? No. The reason why this becomes important, it's possible for people to have some kind of gifting from God for reasons that I don't quite understand. But they're completely disconnected from God. And Saul joins the groups of prophets in songs of joy and thanksgiving. And look at verse 11 and it says, And it happened when all who knew him formally saw that he, that he indeed prophesied among the prophets that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the Son of Kish?'" Or if you really like quiche. No, I'm just kidding. It's Kish. Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, here's the idea. Saul's change is at once dramatic and visible and public. And that expression, is Saul among the prophets, might have a modern equivalent to how you and I might say, he got religion. Have you ever heard anyone use that expression? Well, you know, you heard that he or she got religion. Or when I was a kid growing up, they would say they became a Jesus freak. You know, how do you go from biker to Jesus freak? How do you go from criminal to uh, correct? How do you go from being wicked and mean? How do you go from the little G gangsta to the big G God person? When Chuck Colson was indicted on the Watergate conspiracy and he went to prison, this was the person whose office was right across from the President of the United States. And he goes into jail and he claims to have this born-again experience with Jesus. And you can imagine everyone was uh, pretty suspicious. How do you go from hatchet man to Bible-believing Christian? And that's part of what I think is being said here. There's an element of sarcasm. How do you go from being Saul to being a person who is numbered with the prophets? And so in verse 12 it says, Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? And therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets. The expression, who is their father, probably means, hey, where's all this coming from? What's the source of the inspiration? Remember, in First John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Test the spirits. When there is a radical, dramatic, fundamental change, a radical departure from the way a person was and they become an entirely different person, check it out. My family was convinced that I was just going through a phase. Yeah, Gino, right. First it was witchcraft and then it was Baha'i and then it was Eastern religions and then it was this and then it was that and you're going through your Christian phase but your Jesus freak phase will be over in a little while and five years went by and ten years went by and fifteen years went by and twenty years went by twenty-five years went by thirty years went by and my mom said, okay, it looks like you're pretty much a Christian It seems like the change is pretty real He's asking the question, who is their father? Is this from God? Or is this happening from some other place? It says in verse 13, and and when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Now, here is the idea. When it says that he was prophesying, does that mean that now Saul is a prophet? No, I don't think so. I think it's possible to exercise a gift, but not necessarily occupy the office. Let me give you an example. Do pastors do? Do pastors teach the Bible? Do pastors pray for people? Do pastors go to hospitals? Do they pray for the sick? You know, these are all pastoral things. But going to a hospital or teaching the Bible or or praying for people, that doesn't make you a pastor. What makes you a pastor is you occupy an office. It's different from performing pastoral functions And see, that's sometimes we get confused. We confuse the function with the office. Let me give you another example. Imagine a person is running for president of the United States. And they talk like a president. And they walk like a president. And they act like a president. Does that make them the president? No. But once you get elected, and you occupy the office of the president, Even though you walk and talk and act like a president, you really are the president. And so part of the problem with Saul is that his whole encounter with God is a series of external happenings. Yes, he meets them. Yes, he has this experience of prophesying. Yes, he goes to the high place. And how is it that these experiences, and this becomes the most important thing, how is it possible that you have this series of experiences and it has such a superficial impact on your life? Yeah, I went to church. Yeah, I read the Bible. Yeah, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. But I still fundamentally live exactly the same way that I used to live. I think the same thoughts. I say the same words. I have the same relationships. Are you telling me that you have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and it doesn't fundamentally change who you are? Remember what I said to you earlier, when Saul is out of touch with Samuel, when Saul is out of touch with David, his internal orientation defaults into this selfish mode. He lapses into the old ways and his confidence in the Lord disappears. Is that you? You know what? I'm fine if I'm going to church and I'm fine if I'm around my Christian friends and I'm fine if I'm reading the Bible. But the moment I get around my unbelieving friends, it all unravels like a cheap suit. Who are you? Really, fundamentally, deep down inside. And in verse 14, it says, then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, "Uh, where'd you go? So he said, to look for the donkeys. And when we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. Now, he asks a pretty innocent question. Where did you go? It's not, it's not difficult. And in verse 15, and Saul's uncle said, tell me, please. Well, what did Samuel say to you? And look at verse 16. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he didn't tell him what Samuel had said. Why? 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 Why do you suppose Samuel didn't tell his close relative about the matter of the kingdom? Question, Bible students Was it wisdom or was it fear? Let's give an argument for wisdom first, okay? If Saul told his uncle, Hey, dude, God's made me the king over all of Israel. And what do you suppose the uncle's reaction is going to be? What? Where did this come from? It reminds me of that stupid movie about uh, the return of the Jedi or whatever, where, where Han Solo is in carbonite. Remember, he's frozen for what seems like a generation. And he comes out of this hibernation and all of a sudden he goes, What? The whole world is, what are you talking about? Everybody's a Jedi now? You know, it's like the whole world has changed while I went to sleep. God made you the king. Or is it? Because he's afraid. To share what God has done in this life? Is he not prepared to talk about what's happened? You know, I went looking for donkeys. I had no idea that I was going to be the king. Uh, Saul basically anointed me with oil. He kissed me on top of my head. He gave three signs. Incredible signs about how, how God is going to take care of me. And how uh, God is going to make a provision for me. And it was just it was unbelievable. And all of these weird things happened exactly as Samuel said it would. Wisdom? Or fear? What do you think? Are there times when the most important thing that you can do is keep your mouth shut if you know that it's going to antagonize and create an unbelievably bad circumstance? Or is it because he's afraid to actually communicate what God has done in his life? You tell me about you. When is the best time to tell people about what God has done in your life, what Jesus has done in your life, and what He's done in your heart. And then we go to Samuel's speech. Look what it says in verse 17. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah. This is a sort of a continuation that's happened from chapter 8. Remember? All of Israel has demanded a king because you're old, your sons are wicked. And we want to be like all the rest of the nations. And so now all of a sudden he calls all of them together at Mitzvah. And in verse 18 it says, And said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. Verse 19, But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries. Adversities and your tribulations, and you've said to him, No, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Now, listen carefully to what's happening. He's reminding them of what they asked for. He has representatives, people from all of the tribes, from Dan to Beersheba, from the very north to the very south, all of the tribes, all of the clans are present and accounted for. And in verse 20, it says, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Here's what's happening. There's a series of lots that are being cast. Now, there's two kinds of people who read this text. The critic who says, The fix is in. The broken chads, the hanging chads, are being miscounted by Samuel. Because the fix is in, God is going to make Saul the king, and it doesn't really matter. But it really does matter, because here's part of the supernatural thing that's taking place right at this very moment. In the Israeli culture, they had a thing called the Urim and the Thummim. It was a device that was used in the process of lots. That means casting lots in order to eliminate by section and by circumstance. You'll remember in the New Testament when Judas hung himself, remember the apostles cast lots to see which person would replace Judas. And now there is a there is a supernatural lot that's being cast and they're starting to eliminate the tribes. And now they eliminate it down to Benjamin. And it says and when they cause the tribe of Benjamin to come near, they start to eliminate The tribal groups or their families. The family of Matri was chosen. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. Now, here's what you have to understand. This is all taking place supernaturally by lots. The fix is not in. A real God is superintending the selection. Imagine we were going to make one of you um, leader of Calvary for a day. But we're going to open it up to everybody who can fill in Vesco Field. And we put 76,000 people in in random seats. And by lots, we begin eliminating sections. And then we eliminate rows. And then we come right down to the seat. And there's a one in 76,000 chance that you're going to be selected. And you are. That's luck or chance. But through this series of circumstances, with all of the hundreds of thousands of people in the lottery, so to speak, guess what? Saul, the son of Kish, is chosen. But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. And look at verse 22. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, probably again using this Device called the Urim and the Thummim. we 're not exactly sure how it works, but they inquired of the Lord, "Has the man come here yet?" And the Lord answered, "There he is, hidden in the equipment. The idea is, he's hanging out in the supplies. Question: Why? Is it humility? Is it fear? Is he afraid? Is he still struggling? Did God really call me to be the king? Did he call me to lead the people? Would his appointment end up in a failure? What if the people don't like him? What if they reject him? Did the fear cause Saul to forget all of the signs that God had given to confirm the call? In his fear, does he ever cry out to God and say, you anointed me? And the prophet kissed me. And a series of supernatural circumstances were unfolded to me. And promises were made to me. Does he fear the limelight? Does he fear leadership? Let me ask you. Have you ever met a king? Any of you? Ever met a full-on, for-real king? We had one guy at our church, James Nyanda, who was the the crown prince of of his particular tribal group. I always wondered what a king acts like. You know, does a king know he's king? Does a king, like, have a regal bearing and speak like a king? James Nyanda did. He looks like a king and he talks like a king. But when you're called, you don't always know what a pastor looks like or talks like. When you're called to a specific task and you wonder, do I fit the ministry bill of what I'm being called to? I think it's safe to say that Saul, right from the start, doesn't have spiritual sensibilities. He grows up in the shadow of a dominant personality. Saul isn't necessarily spiritual. Remember, he has no knowledge of who Samuel really is. And when push comes to shove, he has very little spiritual resources to draw upon. I'm going to suggest to you that like his father before him, his father's spiritual indifference also leaked out on Saul. I suspect Saul's father was the local leader of the tribal militia and now Saul has got to come into the limelight and he has to assume the role of the leader and not the follower and he is unprepared now I want you to think about this for a moment has God called him has the prophet anointed him has a series of signs been given to him then why didn't the fear go away Really, you should ask yourself, has God called you and anointed you and given you a series of supernatural circumstances pointing you in the direction that you are, in fact, called to be what God has called you to be a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a a, a friend, a, a person who is called to a ministry with very specific gifts and callings. And in verse 23, it says, so they ran. And brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. In other words, if you were to try and cast in a Hollywood movie a guy who looks like a king. He would look like Saul. He would be tall and handsome and good looking. And in verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? Remember what the people wanted? A man after God's own heart or a man after someone else's heart? You want a person who looks and talks like a king? Okay, So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. And in verse 25, then it says, then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it before the Lord. That means they put it in the sanctuary. By the way, do we have a copy of this book? No. Is this book in the Bible? No. What was this book? I'm going to suggest to you that it was a book about the rights and the responsibilities of the king in his relationship to the Lord, his relationship to the prophet, and his relationship to the people. I'm going to suggest to you it was a sort of Israeli Bill of Rights and Constitution. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And so, again, the behavior of royalty, I think it's a, it's a technical term. It's the it's the word Mishpat. And I think it means legal document. It, it, I think even the NIV might translate that regular regulations. So the idea, how are kings to behave? How are the subjects to behave? What are the leadership perks and privileges and responsibilities? I'm going to suggest to you that whatever else it was, it probably incorporated a lot of Deuteronomy. This is the relationship of kings. You're to love and serve the Lord. And you're to love and serve the people. Remember what Jesus said about the leaders that he surrounded himself with? He who would be great among you. What should be their outstanding characteristic? He who would be great among you. What should they be? Go ahead. Pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. He would be the servant. He would be the servant. The real leader will be a person who serves the Lord and serves others. And it says in verse 26 in Saul also went to Gibeah and Valium went with him whose hearts got a touch. And so immediately a group of soldiers joined Saul and they become a kind of an elite guard for Saul, for the new king. And in verse 27, it says, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and they brought him no presents. but he held his peace. Now, it's interesting in the original language in verse 27, the word translated rebels It's the Hebrew expression, sons of Belial. It's very interesting. Because it was a word that ancient Hebrew people would use to describe wicked, vile, rebellious people. Now, this is interesting for so many different reasons. The reason they're called, I believe, sons of Belial is in rejecting Saul, they're really rejecting the theocracy that he now represents. You know, in the book of Romans, it says that we as Christians are to obey the governing authorities. We're to honor those to whom honor is due. We are to respect those to whom respect is due. We as Christians, even though we give ourselves a great deal of latitude in judicial appointments and presidential candidates, The latitude isn't given in the Bible. The Bible says you're to respect and honor the people in authority over you. You're to give them the honor and the respect that are due them. As a matter of fact, F.B. Meyer says, quote, the Hebrew as suggested is still more striking. He, He was as though he had been deaf. In other words, when it says, But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presence. But you see at the end of the verse where it says, but he held his peace. In the original language, this is what it says. He pretended like he was deaf. Isn't that interesting? He pretended not to hear. But he did hear every word. He heard every word. And I got to suggest something to you. And it's going to strike deep into his heart. It's going to make a difference. Meyer writes, he did hear it is a great power when a man can act as though he were deaf to slander, deaf to detraction, deaf to unkind and uncharitable speech and treat them as though they had never been spoken, turning from man to God, leaving with God his vindication and believing God that sooner or later he will give him a chance of vindicating the true prowess and temper of his soul. Unquote. The reason I love that so much is because the young King Saul is exercising a modest amount of humility and wisdom. My friend David Gusick writes, quote, from this we see that Saul started out with so much promise. He was chosen and anointed by God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has the support of a man of God like Samuel. He's been given appropriate gifts to royalty. He has the enthusiastic support and goodwill of all the nation. He has valiant men around him whose hearts God has touched to support him. He has the wisdom to not regard every doubter, every critic, every enemy. But despite all of these advantages, Saul can still blow it. Will he walk in the advantages that God has given him? Or will he go his own way? The rest of the book of 1 Samuel gives answer to that question. But it brings an even more important question. And the question is really for you. Think about all of the spiritual advantages that have been given to you. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been accepted in the Beloved. You're forgiven in Christ. And heaven is your future home. You've been given all of the advantages. And will you walk in those advantages? Or will you walk your own way? as we see the life of Saul, it's going to give us an opportunity to examine our own hearts and our own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing book this is and what amazing lessons it contains. When we think about the signs given to Saul and the signs given to us, how You've led us, how You've guided us, how You've provided for us, how You've loved us, how you've stood with us. Lord, I think about what my granddaughter sang this morning at her little kindergarten graduation. You are good all the time. You are good all the time. Lord, you're good all the time. Even when we misunderstand our own circumstances, Lord, you're good all the time. And Heavenly Father, I pray that it would be our deep, deep desire to walk in the advantages that You've given to us. And Lord, that we could avoid the pitfalls. Lord, why couldn't Saul allow the signs, allow the promises to give him courage and comfort and hope? Lord, why won't we allow the Bible to do the same for us? Lord, I pray that you would begin to work on our hearts and that you would direct us in the way that we need to be directed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.